Welcome to the Branches Podcast. Following the lead of Jesus, we seek to embrace people regardless of their background or their present ground in the hope they find holy ground. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about the reckless love of Jesus or our community of faith, please visit our website at branchesoc.com. Today's scripture is Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. If you need a Bible, Topher or BT will hand one to you. If you don't own a Bible, uh, you're welcome to make this Bible your very own Bible. Write your name in it. Call it your own. Uh, It is our gift to you. Everybody should have equal access to the Scriptures. So, anybody feeling it this morning? I'm feeling it. Uh, I was watching a number of news stories last night, and uh, it's difficult not to be affected by what's happening in our country. Would you agree? Um, I'm not even going to get started on North Korea, but... But the tragedy of Charlottesville is actually what's kind of weighing pretty heavily on me. And uh, it all, I mean, all of it really grieves me, as I'm sure it, it grieves all of you as well. And I, I titled today's sermon, Others. I feel it's really appropriate uh, given the current climate we're living in. And I, I feel like it should go without saying that I condemn racism and neo-Nazism and the KKK and any kind of racial supremacy that, I feel like that should go without saying, but uh, I'll say it out loud. Um, but I think it's terrible that these things are happening in our nation, as evolved as we claim to be uh, in 2017. It seems like we still have quite a ways to go. And at the same time, I also want to say it should go without saying that, uh, that I believe that all those groups that I just mentioned are made in the image of God. And that's that's the harder part, right? Uh, that they're loved by God as much as all of us here. Uh, and that's the power of the good news in my mind. That is the power of the good news of the gospel, that that love of God does not discriminate against us based on our actions or our beliefs or our skin color or history. God continues to move toward us in love even when we lash out in hate. So I want to begin today with a prayer. Uh, A friend of mine pastors a church in Rochester, Michigan, and he wrote this prayer, and I'm simply going to pray it, uh, because I thought it was beautiful in light of our circumstances. So I'm just going to ask you to pray this prayer with me, and in that, just close your eyes and let these words be our words. Uh, Oh God, we, we come before you this morning, and we need you. Help us renounce apathy and silence wherever 
there is tolerance for an unholy, limited vision of humanity. Give us courage to speak and act in defense of those most at risk of hostility and harm. Come by your Spirit and shield all those experiencing injustice, cruelty, and savagery because of race. Come by your Spirit and defend those who protect the oppressed, who guard the dignity of your image in all humans. Lord, bring swift justice to those who embrace threats, terror, and bloodshed, who worship violence and death. May these enemies of our common created goodness be visited by angels and converted to the cause of human flourishing revealed to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither rich nor poor, and in whom we, together with all creation, hope, hope, hope for universal reconciliation with each other by and in you and your all Holy Spirit. Everybody said, Amen. What I want to share with you today flies in the face of the actions that we, uh, and the behavior that we saw this last week. And so if you'll indulge me, let's get into it. If you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're still in our series known as My Verse, and again, this is to compel us that we might memorize these passages of Scripture and make them a part of who we are, that we might draw upon them throughout our days and our lives. And last week, if you were here, it was convicting for me. Um, It's been a message that we've been revisiting in our home all week, Anna and I. And to be honest with you, I've got like another passage this week, which really convicts me again. And, And I was talking to Anna and some of the things I was learning and thinking of sharing with you all this morning uh, I was in the kitchen and I'm kind of just doing some studying and I, I walk out and I'm like, oh, babe, super gnarly. <laughs> this is real. I, I, was, I was like, it's like a huge punch to the gut, a good gut punch uh, of just conviction. So I just want to give you fair warning. Uh, I'm a good news guy. Like, I love the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God and that life is, that kind of life is available to us here and now. And so when I have like a gut punch, it's kind of like, uh oh. (laughs) This isn't like always the most fun stuff to share. But I want to just give it to you in a different light, I hope. Um, But last week I talked about the good, um, talked about having a different view of the world where in that we would declare that Jesus is Lord, it would have direct implications on how we thought about the stuff that we own. We would think differently about our possessions. We talked about how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and the fellowship and the prayers, but that then they were selling their possessions and giving to everyone as they had need among them, and they were adding to the, daily to the number that the people were being saved. And maybe that salvation wasn't just in a spiritual aspect, but a larger, more more holistic aspect. And this verse we're going to look at continues the conversation, so I want to to keep it going, and I'm going to read those first five verses of chapter two uh, that Charlotte read, and then we'll just, we'll make some comments on them. So again, in verse one, therefore, 
And we'll find out why that's there. Uh, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Rather, in humility... Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So just to set the stage a little bit for this letter that Paul has written to the church in Philippi, uh, we know from the books of Acts that Paul was most likely responsible for getting this church off the ground, um, that You can just tell by this letter that Paul really loves the church in Philippi. It's an eclectic group of people. He really likes them. They bring him great joy. He writes this letter from prison, generally a a place of suffering, a place of pain. He writes it from prison, and he thanks them. Hey, thanks for sending some money to help me out. Uh, But he has this conditional statement that he hits on in verse 1 of chapter 2. If any of this means anything to you, then make my joy complete by what? By being of the same mind, the same love, this having humility, being united together, having the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Because when all you do is think about your own self, when you worry about just you, when it's just your selfish ambition, when it's just your vain conceit, it causes division and ultimately destruction. So I want to look at a couple words that word nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition. There's some, I went and did some real Greek study here. Uh, in the Greek, it means meiden, or that's the word. And I wanted to check it out. That word nothing, surprisingly, it actually liter- it literally translates into um, nothing. Not anything at all. <laughs> nothing. Don't do anything. Nothing. With with these motivations, selfish ambition and, or, or vain conceit. Then I looked at selfish ambition, and that word was first used by a philosopher named Aristotle. Some of you may have heard of him. And it, Aristotle used it as a, to mean a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Interesting. I'll let you make your own connections. Uh, like... But it also is used in the, word, the term for a mercenary. It's like if we were all fighting for this common noble cause, but then there was one of you that's like, well, I'm just here for the paycheck. I don't actually care about any of this. Don't do stuff like that. Don't do it out of those kind of motivations where you're just waiting for the, for the cash out. Don't do that kind of stuff. Or vain conceit is the other one. Uh, that word in the Greek is... Kenodoxia, which is uh, kenos means empty. Conceit means, uh, is the word for glory. It means, uh, is doxia, is the word for glory. So empty glory. Don't do it for this empty glory. Don't do anything because you want all the attention and all the glory and adoration for, for being a particular kind of person that you actually are not. Here, here's uh, the longer definition they would say is um, reality television. Reality television is attention, adoration, glory, fame for 
not for any, anything that would actually bring about those things, <laughs> other than that now they're on TV. So there's this sort of empty glory. It doesn't come from a place without having to be the kind of particular person that would merit fame, adoration, praise, any of that stuff. They don't have to be that kind of person. They're simply just given to us as celebrities. Don't do things because you want to be thought of in a particular way, even though you're actually not that way. Then in humility. And uh, humility, we've talked about here before, and I thought about, like, maybe I should just make this all about humility. Um, We've talked about in times past where we ask God to humble us, but most of the time what God ends up doing is humiliating us. Uh, So humility comes from within you. It's not a gift that you're given. Like, oh, I really just have the spiritual gift of humility. It's amazing. There's like an oxymoron, paradoxical sort of thing there, right? Uh, Some people struggle with humility. It's not really been my struggle. It's just, you know, (laughs) does that make it more clear how weird it is? Uh, God will humiliate you uh, if you ask him to. Prop, I, mean, I don't know, maybe. Uh, I've always heard sermons, people are like, I ask God to humble me. Don't ever pray that prayer. You know, and I was like, yeah, because most likely you're going to be humiliated. But at the same time, you can be humiliated by God and still not be humble, right? You can still be proud. But I think there's something bigger that Paul's getting into in all this, and I want to get to the center of that, and there's an arc to this entire letter. It's headed somewhere, and at the beginning of the letter, Paul's talking about how there's this, they're sharing in this common struggle. I mean, Paul's writing from prison, and the emperor Nero is this cruel, cruel, cruel Caesar, and what he's doing is he's crucifying people that are following the way of Jesus. Uh, It's recorded that Nero would throw these huge grand parties and that he would take followers of Jesus and put them up as torches, light them on fire to light his parties, to light the roadways so that you knew how to get to the palace, that that literally, it's just awful. This is where things are headed. And Paul makes this shift. Therefore, he doesn't go into... Let me give you some ideas about how to subtly defy the emperor in ways that don't get you cut in two or crucified or put up as a human torch. Or let me tell you how to handle this. Or here's how you can resist Caesar. Or here's how you can, you know, he doesn't go into any political, military action. He says, actually, the struggle I'm concerned with is, is right here among us. Leave out all that stuff. Therefore, in light of all that stuff, In the first chapter, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you, I will know that you stand firm in in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. That's verses 27 and 28 of the first chapter. But instead of telling them how to deal with the impending doom, He's he's so concerned that they would have this one love, one mind, one spirit, same attitude, mind of Christ, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Why? So I want to look at it briefly because I think what Paul is doing is he's, 
actually laying out what he believes about God and how he thinks the God of the universe is. So in this next slide, let's just look back at chapter 1. In verse 1, servants of Christ Jesus, it says, writing to all God's holy people in Christ. Verse 2, grace and peace to you from God the Father. And it also comes, this grace and peace, also comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 6 talks about a day of Christ Jesus. And verse 7 talks about sharing in God's grace. Verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Verse, and then all the way up to 19, God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any common sharing in the Spirit. So he talks about God, he talks about Christ Jesus, and he talks about the Spirit. And he seems to kind of use these interchangeably. And what Paul is getting at here is what we've kind of come to understand is this uh, theological thing called the, uh, the Trinity. Um, and without going into another hour-long sermon about what the Trinity is, uh, let me just say a few things. This triune or trini Trinitarian understanding of God that Paul is talking about, that God is a dynamic relationship. And that doesn't make sense. It's, it's a bit of a mystery, right? It's, it, this, the key thing that we get from Paul in this is that God is communal. That God is relationship. So we learn a few things. One, God is generous because God gives this grace and this peace to you. And it comes from God. It comes from Jesus. It's in the Spirit. We learn that God is personal. We've read, we keep reading in Paul that he that began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it out to completion. There's this sort of personal aspect of God. And then there's this communal aspect of God. Uh, this trinity is this idea of God pulling us into what many scholars have referred to as the divine dance. Um, it comes from an ancient theological term called perichoresis. Peri, which means to be around, and choresis or chorein, which means to move or to make space for. So to move around and make space for, and it's this idea that there is this sort of circular dance kind of thing going on between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each making space for the other and moving around the other, and it's very dynamic and moving. Sometimes we get pulled into that dance by great love. Space is made through great love, and, and God enters in and fills that space Sometimes we get pulled in through great suffering. And I would argue most of us don't want to be pulled in that way. But sometimes something happens in your life and space is made again and God comes in and fills that space again. But we find out Paul's God is generous. He is personal. Came in the flesh, working in your life, but is also a community God is a community of love and grace and peace and healing and joy and beauty and kindness and fullness of life. One scholar, brilliant scholar, Scott McKnight, in his book, Embracing Grace, a Gospel for All of Us, he writes in this next slide, God's eternal reality 
is the love between Father, Son, and Spirit. There's this communal aspect, this relational aspect to our existence. Now, the other word I didn't mention earlier when I went through some words was the word others. Value others above yourselves. That word others in the Greek is uh, alelus. It's really, uh, when you transliterate it back into English, it comes out, uh, again, surprisingly, others. Very, uh, but the simplicity is its brilliance. Because when we think of others, we think of, well, I could, I could consider others so long as they're, you know, in my age range, they make the same amount of money as me, they look like me, think like me, believe like me, act like me, raise their kids like me. All, I can consider those others. But literally, it's everyone who is not you. So I would argue it's often the one who is least like you. The most difficult one to love is the one to value if you want to learn what God is like. Would you value that one? Would you learn what it's like to not hold someone's past against them in order to understand how God doesn't hold your past against you? It's that one person who you see here on Sundays and you're like, I really don't want to talk to that person. Or, oh, here they come. I get some coffee. And that person is, is literally here in flesh saying, I am here to challenge you to think differently about how the world is ordered. Karl Barth, a brilliant Swiss theologian, he died in the 1960s, he wrote this, the strange, the different, the unintelligible, the strange, the different, and the unintelligible. You guys know anybody strange? Anyone different from you? The subjective aspect of my neighbor, that thing in which we can never agree on, it's okay to be this way, or it's okay to be that way, or it's okay to be this. The subjective, subjective aspect of my neighbor is the garment in which the one thing, which Bart argues is grace, the one thing meets me. We discover respect for one another, not on this ground or that, not for the things that you can do, or the things that you haven't done, or did in the past. It's not conditional, but, but counter to every ground, simply because we are bidden to look at the one thing, which is grace. The claim my neighbor makes on me, on my patience, on my attention, on my consideration, on my love, is the claim on the one thing, grace. So when you encounter that person, and it's on your attention, on your patience, on your emotional energy, that... <laughs> is the garment of grace right there. That is, that is literally God saying, this is what it's like to be in relationship with you. <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> I was talking to a friend this last week, <laughs> and 
just a dear friend, has a son uh, with, with autism, and has, that son has been a real challenge to him. And, and he says, I, I like to connect with people, and I wanted to connect with my son like we would sit you know, and have a cup of coffee and just talk about our lives. But really, he just calls me when he needs something. Like he needs something fixed or something in the house. And so he calls me. He's 20, you know, in his 20s now. Dad, I need you to fix this. Tell me how to fix this. So then I tell him how to fix this. And then he's like, all right, bye. And he's like, and that's it. And, and I'm, and I, I'm like upset and I'm sad and I want this, I want the relationship to look a certain way. And he's like reflected on this for many years now. And he says, isn't that a lot like what we're like with God? You know, I need I, to fix this, just fix it. And then we're out. And, and he says, I've been learning more and more. What does it look like to love him as he is and not as how I want him to be? And I wonder that that's God all the time, loving us as we are and not how he wants us to be, but simply right where we're at. Valuing others is valuing those we like and those we don't like. And why is this important? Um, I want to read a little bit to you because I like reading to you. Uh, this is written by my friend Pete Rollins, and this was the gut punch I came out of the, the kitchen telling Anna about, uh, where I was like, oh, I just feel like someone kicked me in the stomach. Uh, it's going to take about three minutes, so just settle in. Uh, but Pete Rollins, he wrote a book called The Orthodox Heretic, and in it he tells a number of different stories. He rewrites some parables to bring to light some things that we might not see otherwise, and uh, so this parable that I'm going to read to you, or this, this tale, or this story that I'm reading to you, uh, is based off Jesus feeding the 5,000 people. If you're not familiar with that story, uh, we can talk afterwards, but uh, essentially Jesus feeds a whole group of people. Everybody has enough, and then there's some left over even, thousands of people, because uh, that's how Jesus does it. But I want you to listen to this story, Jesus and the 5,000, that Pete Rollins wrote. And so just settle in for this, this little story. And then I'm going to read after a little commentary that Pete has written as well. Again, three minutes. And maybe you want to close your eyes and just allow this story to wash over you. Jesus withdrew privately by boat to a solitary place. But the crowds continued to follow him. Evening was now approaching, and people, many of whom had traveled a great distance, were growing hungry. Seeing this, Jesus sent out his disciples to gather food. But all they could find were five loaves and two fish. Then Jesus asked that they go out again and gather up the provisions that the crowds had brought to sustain them in their travels. And once this was accomplished, a vast mountain of fish and bread stood before Jesus. Upon seeing this, he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Standing before the food and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks to God and broke the bread. 
Then he passed the food among his 12 disciples. Jesus and his friends ate like kings in full view of the starving people. But what was truly amazing, what was miraculous about this meal was that when they finished the massive banquet, there were not even enough crumbs left to fill a starving person's hand. Pete says this about the story. The initial shock of this story relates to the way that inscribes selfish and inhuman actions onto Christ himself by twisting the story we all know of Jesus feeding the multitude. While it would seem perfectly acceptable to attack governments, corporations, and individuals for failing to distribute goods appropriately and turning away from the poorest among us who suffer as a direct result of our greed, it would seem inappropriate to read such inhumanity into the actions of Christ himself. If anything, Christ was one who demonstrated a life of joyful simplicity, radical healing, and unimaginable love. Christ challenges us to look outward, and thus he should not be the one who we condemn. Yet, in the Bible we read that those who follow Christ are nothing less than the manifestation of his body in the world today. The presence of Christ is in the world is said to be directly encountered in the presence of those who gather together in his name. Branches. In very concrete terms, people learn of Christ through those who claim to live out the way of Christ. However, if Christ is proclaimed in the life of his followers, if the body of believers is thought to manifest the body of Christ in the world, then we must stop, draw breath, and ask ourselves whether the previous tale reflects how Christ is presented to the world today at least in the minds of those who witnessed the lifestyle of Christians in the West. Gut punched. That cuts to it for me. I don't, I don't feel like I need to explain much more about what I just read other than that, like, we need to think critically about whether <laughs> we're giving the world that kind of vision of who Jesus is. Because I think Pete may be on to something here that is so embedded in our nation and our culture that it's really difficult to see it and give it our attention. But we are the body of Christ and how we treat each other makes a big difference on how people who don't know Jesus understand Jesus. I want to read one more quote and then we'll close. Close. Uh, Elton Trueblood, who who I'm going to read from, and this is the second half of the quote that you're seeing here, but he was a chaplain for both Harvard and Stanford universities. Uh, He passed away in 1994. He wrote this. He wrote, Jesus was deeply concerned for the continuation of his redemptive, reconciling work after the close of his earthly existence. And his chosen method was the formation of a small band of committed friends. He didn't form an army, establish a headquarters, or even write a book. What he did was to collect a few very common men and women, inspire them with the sense of his spirit, his vision, his mind, his love, his compassion, and build their lives into an intense 
fellowship of affection, worship, and work. And now listen to this. I love this slide. One of the truly shocking passages of the gospel is that in which Jesus indicates that there is absolutely no substitute for the tiny, loving, caring, reconciling society. If this fails, he, says, he suggests, all is failure. There is no other way. He told this little bedraggled fellowship that they were actually the salt of the earth. And that if this salt should fail, there would be no adequate preservative at all. He was staking it all on one throw. Paul got it. It's not about responding to the military superpowers. It's not about the political issues. It's about the struggle. The real struggle is right here in this room, right here. Can we just be of one mind, one spirit, one love? Having that same mind that Christ Jesus had? Thinking differently about our, the things that we own. We have to continually be looking how to love each other in humility, how to care about others over ourselves. We hear of hatred, bigotry, and we can stand from afar and point the finger, but where are we complicit here in this room with each other? What can we do right here in this room to begin to demonstrate the body of Christ in Dana Point? Because things were getting bad in Philippi, and Paul wasn't concerned how to handle the political and military forces. He was saying the real struggle is among us. Can we stay united in love, in mind, in spirit, in purpose? And I would argue that same question and encouragement is passed to us thousands of years later. That in humility, we would value others above ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, I, I just confess that this is really hard for me. And so I know if I'm, I know, I know that if you've given me the opportunity to share this up here, I know that there are those out there that are equally feeling like that's really, really difficult. also know, Lord, that when we live the way that you say is true life, that there is joy, there is healing, there is a presence, that we don't stand from afar and, and look at you, but there is always a hand inviting us into this dance. where we love, where we respect, where we have compassion and kindness and joy. God, I, I pray that we would, we would really draw a breath and reflect on what it, would, what it means to be your body. When people think of us and when people are here with us, are they embraced with the grace and the peace that you give freely? Oh, that we would be that way, Lord. Forgive us where we fall short. Lord, may our lives be in response to the grace and the peace that you have given to us. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with me if you're able? These next couple songs are going to be songs um, in response to Esh's message about realizing that we need the Lord's help to live and be the people he's asking us to be, but also um, reflecting on the certainty that he is there for us and he will finish the good work. You can have a seat for just a second. When John was teaching us today, I was thinking about three years ago, it was about three years ago, I had dropped my daughter at preschool and I was driving Oso on the stretch that at that time I would drive to work. And I was driving and I got pulled over. <laughs> and I drive a ton, I've always driven a lot for my job. And so I'm of the mindset, when I get pulled over, I deserve it about a hundred times already because I just didn't get pulled over. Those that is like my mindset when I because I'm on the road so much. I've done. I'm sure I do things and I didn't even know I did them. You know. So this police officer he pulls me over on Oso, and it was one of those times where my phone was in the center console. I didn't have it in my hand. My radio wasn't even on, and he walks up to my window and I put my window down. I said hi. He says, hi. He said, do you know what you did? And I was like, speeding? <laughs> and he said, yes, you were speeding. He said, do you know how fast you were going? It's like, 60? He's <laughs> like, it was something like you were going like 72. Yeah. And wherever I was, maybe it was like a 45 and I was going 60, or it was, but it was you know, wrong. <laughs> and I said, okay. And he said, you know, license and registration. And so I got it. And um, he went back to his motorcycle, and did his thing. I'm just waiting. And I'm, I'm thinking like, oh, got to tell Shane, got a ticket, you know. And he comes back to my window with my license and my registration and he hands it to me. And he said, I'm not going to give you a ticket today. Yeah. I start bawling. I'm so embarrassed. I start bawling. His face, he like panics. He said, why are you crying? What, you know, and he looks shocked. He said, why are, you, why are you crying? Most people cry when I walk up to the window. Why are you crying now? He like did not know what to do with me. And I could barely talk. And I don't think I realized, you know, when you get pulled over, it's like that, um, the anxiousness and the adrenaline, and it like, it broke when he told me he wasn't gonna give me a ticket. And I could not get my act together. And I was like, I'm crying be because, because you're showing me mercy. <laughs> so embarrassing. Oh my gosh. And uh, he looked at me, and there was like a moment, and I could feel the Holy Spirit there. I don't know how else to say it, it was just a moment. And I knew I deserved it, and he knew I deserved it, and he didn't give me what I deserved. And that's mercy. And he just looked at me and he said, have a good day. And I went like 30 to work, <laughs> right? 
And I am not kidding when I tell you, almost every single day, probably every time, every day I'm driving on the road, I think about that police officer because that man had more impact in my life and changed the game for me. And who's to say that that man didn't maybe change my life, save my life, because I just pay attention in a different way now, and I feel a responsibility to the mercy that he showed me to try not to get pulled over again for speeding. It'll be something else, <laughs> you know? And I was just sitting there, and I was thinking, like, there's somebody specific who came to my mind. Who do I need to show mercy to this week? Because mercy is compassion in not giving somebody what they deserve. That's the definition of mercy. I looked it up. And our scripture in Philippians is talking about compassion for others. There is somebody on my heart, two somebody's on my heart. I need to show them mercy and not give them what they deserve. How can we go out? That is how we are a light. You have a circle of influence in your life, your colleagues, your family, your friends, your neighbors. It's so simple to be Christ-like. Who can you show mercy to? in your circle of influence this week? Who can you show grace to, favor? Favor without them deserving it. Maybe you need to give somebody something. They don't deserve it, it's just favor. That is being Christ-like. Let's pray and then we'll go. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and showing us how to be, help us. Help us to be more like you. Help those of us who have children to teach our kids to be more like you because we're acting more like you toward them. Help us, help me. Thank you for your words through John. Thank you for your music through our team. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for another day. We thank you for all that we have. And we ask you to help us in the areas where there's a gap and we need help. Show us how we can be you, your words, your gifts, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears. Show us how we can be you this week in our circles of influence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please go get your kids and if you can help clean up too, that'd be great.